Thank you all for being here tonight. If you have a Bible, we are going to continue our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I would like for you to also, and and maybe turn firstly, uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, We're going to be reading... we're going to be looking at a lot of different parts of the Bible tonight. Most of the verses are going to be on the screen, uh, but we're going to be referencing several verses from chapter 5 of Matthew and, and from other places in Matthew. Uh, so, And I would like for you to see those with your own eyes and see those in your Bible. Um, of course, you can take notes and, and look at all these other Bible verses, but uh, uh, we're going to be referencing a lot of the Bible because we're going to be talking about a subject that is uh, very much uh, uh, well spoken about in the Bible and, and, and talked about a lot in the Bible. So I want to show you um, how it is from front to back uh, talked about and, 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 and uh, uh, important or, or made important or given an, a very important spotlight um, and, and attention. Uh, so the, the subject tonight is really going to come along the lines of our testimonies and our witness for Jesus and our witness for God. And, and that is a subject that maybe you have thought about it before, maybe you haven't, but I want to show you that it's such a, an important subject in the Bible, um, that God has been comparing us and God has been calling his people um, a spotlight since the beginning of time, that God has been comparing you and I to spotlights and preparing us to be spotlights since the beginning of time. And if you know anything about spotlights, uh, it's that they are mounted very high and they're put in a place that they might get the, bring the most light and have the greatest range possible. That a spotlight is more than just something that you, a lamp on a table or a light bulb in a fixture. A spotlight is put in a very specific position that it might would illuminate the widest and largest area as possible. And, and I think that of all the different analogies and all the different uh, ways that God refers to us and, and compares us to, I think spotlight is a really good place for us to start, especially along the, the lines of and, and referring to our testimony and our witness. Now, to be clear, when we talk about spotlight, it doesn't mean that we're in the spotlight, as in it's not that we are the ones the light is always on or the attention is always on, uh, but uh, the, the goal is that we would be a spotlight to God and, and show people what he is doing and the way he is leading us to go. And of course, part of showing people the way involves being in the center of a stage, being in the center of attention. Part of showing people the way and being a witness uh, receive, means that we receive a lot of attention, means that we're going to uh, be the center of attention in a lot of scenarios, not for our glory, but for God's glory. Uh, but the purpose of being in the, on the stage and the purpose of being a spotlight is that we might would point people towards God, to be a spotlight, to be a light in the world. You've heard that phrase and we'll hear that phrase a lot tonight. Uh, Now you can begin in Genesis and you can go all the way through Revelation and you can see this thread in the Bible. This might be one of the top five core themes as far as something you can read about on every page in every book. This might be one of the top five or even top three themes in the Bible as in every book addresses this subject in every uh, angle of the Bible and scripture deals with this subject. So it's not like you can say, well, that's just a minor issue that one book talks about. This is something that all over the scriptures we see. Uh, the earliest example of it, probably the earliest example of it, uh, and it's a big foundational one, is when God called Abram to follow him and he planted the seeds for the nation of Israel. And, and remember how God called Abram and what the ends of that conversation was about. 
The Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So why did God call Abram into what end was this nation going to to, to be? And what was the purpose of this nation? So that he would be a blessing to the world. That yeah, God loved Abram, and yes, God would love Israel, and yes, he would love them in and of themselves. But from the very beginning, God called Abram so that he would be a blessing to the world. So that the world might would be changed through him. So that he might be a light to the world. Do you see that? That when God called Abram, that was his first effort at saying, the world is dark and I need to send the light to the world. And Abram, I'm going to use you to start turning the lights back on. God told him that he was going to put him in the center of his earthly activity. He was going to plan the rest of the, na- the world and the rest of history around him. And, and that has been so true, hasn't it? As Israel has been at the center of so many historical events old day, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in our own time, right? Israel was always at the center of activity because God has used that nation to further his plans and further his agenda. But God used him uh, to show the rest of the world that there was one God and to lead the nations to that one God. And and as we see in Abram's life and we see through his family's life, his descendants and the nation that came from his lineage, God made it clear to Israel in their formation and in their building up under Moses and Joshua that their placement in the world was to make God known. Why did God call Abram? So that the world would be blessed, so that the world would be brightened, so that they would know So when God called Moses to lead the nation out of Israel, from the very beginning of that conversation, God said to Moses, this was the purpose. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them and bring out the people from them. So why did God move in the nation of Israel and lead them out of Egypt? So that the empire that ruled the world would know, not Ra, the God of the Egyptians, not Pharaoh and his gods, many gods that they worship, but that Yahweh, the one and only God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, there was one God and God called Israel and used Israel to make it known, right? Do you see the theme there? Abram, so that the world might would be blessed. Moses, so that the world might would know. Now, when he got them out of Egypt and he got them to Mount Sinai and he began preparing them for what it would be like as a nation established in their own land, God told them this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, God has chosen you for a treasured purpose that you will be set apart to God. Again, why did he choose them? So that the world would be blessed. So that the world would know. 
And you can, read, you can read all throughout the Old Testament. You can see this theme again and again and again. Yes, God loved Israel. And yes, he chose Israel. And yes, he blessed them in and of themselves. But it was always to an end greater than themselves, to a greater purpose of making God known to the point that when Israel was at its highest, when it was at its pinnacle, Solomon has, was king and the world was coming to Solomon. The, the, the kings and queens of all the world were coming to Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 9 and 10. It, 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 the scripture tells us that people from all over the world were coming to Solomon and were remarking about how awesome his God was and how great his people were under his name and that that was the fulfillment of this, that Solomon made known to the world the one true God. Israel was a light to the world. But there was a point in Israel's history not long after his day, Solomon's days that they began to do more damage to God's name than good. Israel began to turn away from God and because they were not a light anymore and because they were making things worse and contributing to the worse condition of the world, God put them in time out essentially. And you can read about that in the days of the prophets. He exiled them for 70 years and really longer than that. They were in, a, in exile, they were in time out. Uh, they were more of an example of how not to live than they were showing the way of the Lord and what it was like under his covenant. Yet God was determined to restore Israel and see them realize his dream for them. Isaiah the prophet talks about it in a couple of chapters. Chapter 42, verse number six, this is what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. What is the word? What is the phrase? As a light for the nations. So again, he told Abraham, he told Moses, he he kills the nation of Israel when they're in exile. I'm going to make you a light. What's the purpose of it? To open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, to save those in darkness. So why was God set on restoring Israel? To make them a light and to bring people to his knowledge and to his salvation. You see, there was always a purpose, wasn't there? There was always a reason to reach more to save more. Isaiah 49, 6. I love this verse. Next verse. It is too light a thing that I should, that, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of of the earth. So when, when God was restoring Israel, he said, I'm not just going to restore you to make you a, a, a prosperous nation that you know, is, is above the rest of the world. I'm going to make you a nation so that you might will be a light to the ends of the earth. So you, you see the thread there, right? From Genesis to Isaiah. We see this emphasis on being a light, being an example, being a showcase, being a spotlight of, so that we might, that more might would know God and have a relationship with him. Now, when you get to the New Testament, uh, we see all that, of this that God was doing through Israel was a means to an end. The end was bringing Messiah to the world through Israel. So if you read the Christmas story, it, it, Luke chapter 2, you, read, you hear this language all throughout Luke 2 when Jesus is born about a light has uh, has been placed in the sky, right? W- what happens when Jesus is born? The wise men come from a faraway land. The shepherds see the light in the sky. One of the, 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 the Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, even says, a day spring from on high has dawned. A light has shined into darkness. 
When Jesus is dedicated to the temple, there was a man named Simeon who had been there for years and years and years, uh, living out his life in dedication to God. And when he sees Jesus, this is what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Listen to this. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles for the glory to your people Israel. So again, Simeon sums up the Old Testament that God called Israel to be a chosen people and through Israel he has been preparing this since the beginning of of its time and he's brought a light not just to Israel but to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the world. So thus, when Jesus steps on the scene, it was no longer up to a nation to show the world who God was. God himself was there in the flesh, come to reveal himself to the world. And Jesus said this about himself. And if you've been paying attention, it's not surprising that he would describe himself like this. I am the light of the world. So when you hear that, your, your ears perk up, right? Because all throughout the Old Testament, God said, I'm making you a light to the world so that the world might be saved. And here comes Jesus through Israel, from Israel. And he says, y'all, I am the light you've been waiting for. I am the answer that you've been looking for. I am the solution for sin. I am the savior of the world. Everyone is in darkness, but if you follow me, you have the light of life. Yet Jesus would only be here physically for a minute, for a couple years, right? On a mini- in a ministry, in a, in a ministry style uh, uh, for three years. He was, going to be, he was going to be here, but of course he was going to depart to heaven. But while he was here, he established a movement. He established a movement. Greater than just a single nation, even though he loved Israel and God continues to love Israel, but God started something that was bigger than Israel, bigger than a nation set in a place in time. He started a movement that would be beyond borders, that would go beyond borders, that would be mobile. And that movement, of course, is called the church. And in Matthew 5, when Jesus is laying the foundation for the church, listen to what he says about us about you and me, about the church. And it's gonna sound similar to what he said about himself. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16, if you follow along with me. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So he says to you and me, you're the salt. Salt in the ancient world wasn't just to make the, ta- the food taste better. It was a preservative. They had no freezers back then. So how did you make meat last? How did you keep meat from spooling? You put salt in it. You packed salt in the meat or around the meat because it preserved it from rotting. So what is God's solution to a world that is rotting and decaying? He has salted it. He has placed us in it as salt. We've been changed by Jesus, so we've been placed in the world to be salt, to season and flavor and preserve the earth. But then he says this, and this, of course, is similar. You are the light of the world. So Jesus, I'm the light of the world. But I'm not going to be here forever in this physical form. So when I leave, you are my body. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. I've established you like a spotlight to be 
able to send and spread light to the whole land. They, nor do they light a lamp, put it under a basket, put a, or, but on a lampstand that it might give light to all who are in the dark house. So the purpose of being a light is that we might would shine. Does that make sense? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we are doing, we serve God so that people may see what God has done in us and what God can do in them. It's not so they might see us and say, wow, look at them, but they see us and then they see God and they look that there is a God above us and there is a God who's living through us and that is the end of all this. That's the purpose of all this. Now, this is the basis for the New Testament ethic that the church is held to. As we've studied in 1 Corinthians, it's why the church is commanded to hold fast to certain standards and certain convictions. And 1 Corinthians 6 is all about why it's so important on several different levels. But just to show you a preview of the extent and extreme to which the New Testament takes this, in Revelation, so to show you that this is from front to back, in Revelation, John is writing to the churches of Asia, churches of ancient Turkey. He stresses the importance of keeping our testimonies, our lights shining bright, exemplifying what God has done in us. He writes this to the church of Ephesus that had drifted away from where it should be. This is what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from your place, from its place, unless you repent. So what's on the line? If we are not shining bright for Jesus, what's on the line? If we are not doing as we should do, as God has intended us to do, what's on the line is that we lose our testimonies. We, we lose our witness. And, and church, this is why 1 Corinthians is... It, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been so hardcore about what Christians should do and what Christians should not do and how Christians should be and how Christians can't be and how the church is held to a higher standard because Paul knows what John knew, what Jesus knew, that our testimony is everything, right? God said, Abraham, through you, Moses, through you, Israel, through you, Jesus says, through you. What is the point? That if all of a sudden we are not shining and we are not illuminating, then what, what, what's going to be going through us? Nothing. And God said to the church of Ephesus that your lampstand, your witness, your light will no longer be functioning it will no longer be shining. It cannot be overstated how important and how valuable and how vital our testimonies are as members of the body of Christ. Our testimony and our witness is the difference between authentically reflecting Jesus and being a word that nobody wants to be called, a hypocrite. That's how important this is. Our testimonies and our witness is the difference. And our testimonies reveal, are we authentically followers of Jesus or are we just pretenders? Are we just in name only following Jesus? Nobody wants to be in the category of hypocrite. Jesus himself reserved that word and that title for the worst offenders. 
to the religious people that, be, that presented themselves like they were holy, but they did not have a real relationship with God. They had they behavior, their behavior exposed them. This is the category that Paul is trying to prevent the church from falling into, from going the way of the Jewish religion, from that looked righteous but was far from it in their hearts. Now, again, last thing that we're going to look at in Matthew for a little while until we go to 1 Corinthians. Flip over to Matthew chapter 23 and, and bookmark that page in chapter 5, but flip over to chapter 23. And I want you to hear, again, I'm not saying this to you all tonight necessarily, but I'm saying this to us as a church, that this is the category that we do not want to be in, but so many Christians and, 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 and professing Christians do fall into. And I think this is why Jesus gave us this word. In Matthew 23, I'm going to just show you a couple different places. Verse 13, and then we'll skip down to verse 23. This is Jesus railing against the religious establishment that looked holy but was not holy, that looked righteous but was not righteous. They were hypocrites. They had no witness or testimony. Verse 13 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You know, you know why he says he, he calls them by their, their self-given titles and then he calls them by their God-given titles. Do you see that? Think about how many religious categories there are in our world today. You know, you have Catholics and Protestants, and then we go down from there. We got Baptists, Evangelicals, and Methodists, Lutherans, and all the different titles. We all have our own labels, right? Calvinists, Arminius. We all have, you know, contemporary traditions. We all will label ourselves as what we think makes us holy or makes us righteous or makes us more like God. But God sees through all that, right? That God says, it is, it's their, your title is not what is your testimony. What you live and how you live in your heart is what reveals you. So he says to the Pharisees and scribes and all the people that gave themselves titles that made themselves look holy, he says, I'll tell you what you really are. I'll tell the world what you really are. You're hypocrites. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to, to have a certain tradition or have a certain title that you, you adhere to, but if that is what you're focused on, it may suggest that you don't really care about the real important issue. And, and they didn't, of course. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, and you do not allow those who are entering to go in. So he says to them, you have made it, you have acted as if you're the only ones that are right and the only ones that are going to heaven, yet you yourself are not going, and you're trying to prevent others from going. So that's the danger of hypocrisy. That's the danger of losing your testimony because it, it, it exposes our own hearts not being in the right place. But as we are trying to represent Jesus, we're doing a bad job at it. And if we're doing a bad job representing Jesus, guess what? Other people aren't going to get to Jesus. So don't you see how it's, why it's important that the church avoid this or, 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 or overcome this? Look down at verse 23. This is a mouthful. Verse 23 through 28 is probably the most scathing indictment against religion there could ever be. But Jesus didn't hold back. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay tithe in mint and, and of, of anise and cumin, as in they would tithe everything. They would take a leaf off of their plants. They would bring a little bit of grain. I mean, they were to, if they could do something to make themselves look holy, right, and it wasn't really costing them much, they would do it. And he says, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faith. 
these things have you all to have done without leaving the others undone. He says, hey, you, can do, you should do these more open and, and, and religious things. Of course you should give. Of course you should attend faithfully. But your life is hypocritical in your day-to-day. And I don't think there should be a disconnect. And of course, that that you do on Sundays doesn't matter if your Monday through Saturday doesn't also reflect it in the way that you treat people, the way that you serve people. You blind guides, you strain out the gnat and you swallow the camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion, greed, and self-indulgence, as in just doing things that make, your, make yourself feel good. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside of them may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which inside appear bright, beautiful outwardly, but which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, I'm not saying, hey, this is, this is every church. Of course, Christians, they're, they're good, faithful people that are following Jesus, but this is so important that the church hear this. And 1 Corinthians is all about preventing the church from becoming like the religion it came out of or was brought out of and saved from. You say, well, you know, I don't really care what people think about me. You know, let them think what they want to think. Listen, it's not about what people think, but it's about what people see. And it's who we are and what we're putting on display. Believe it or not, we are not in our own corners. We've been placed on display for a reason so that we might shine in our world. But if our lights are darkened, if our salt loses its savor, we aren't declaring his name, we are disgracing his name. So, for the last few minutes, we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to break it down three into three parts, all around the notion of our testimonies being so important under this banner that our witness... Let's go to the next slide. Our witness for Jesus is critical in living up to our name as the as a name as in place in his body. So that makes sense, doesn't it? That we are his body. So if we are his body, what does that mean? That means God is saying you are the body of Christ. You represent Jesus, that the closest thing to God on this earth is you. Whether that's scary or whether that's endearing, that's the truth. The closest thing to Jesus on this earth is his church, right? We are his body. That's what it means. So our testimonies are on display in our response to sin, our recovery from sin, in our resistance towards sin. So we're going to see these three. Now, this first one isn't regard to what we think about other people's sin, but how we respond when we are sinned against. So when it says response to sin, it's how do you respond when you're sinned against? Because everybody gets sinned against. So how do you respond to it? Now, let me be clear. In this passage, we're going to read about how Paul addresses the Corinthians who are uh, taking matters into their own hands to, to right wrongs that have been done against them. And Paul says, you better think twice before you do that as a Christian. Let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 7. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? As in, hey, I'm going to go through some worldly means of getting justice rather than trying to come together as the body of Christ and pursuing what is right and what is just. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? As in, 
so quickly we'll go and do use the world's means of trying to get what is ours and doing and, and writing what is wrong, but we won't come into the house of God and seek what God's word says we should do. And that's what he's talking about. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But a brother goes to law against brother, and and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not accept rather wrong or just endure the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now, that's a hard statement to hear, right? Because why would I let somebody do me wrong? Let's talk about that. Now, this is not in regards to criminal situations, uh, more or less. Uh, this, is when, this is regarding cases that are more about principle. Uh, Paul's referring to the Corinthians who are going to court with each other over disputes over property or disputes over money. Romans 13 makes it very clear that God has established the government to defend and protect and avenge people that are uh, suffering egregious wrongs being done, whether it's murder or whether it's some awful assault or something that is just completely uh, unjust and something that is is, is egregious. Uh, But this is regarding trivial matters that we Christians should be able to solve amongst ourselves and that we Christians should be willing to let go in certain circumstances and not hold grudges and not be so bent toward, bent against those that maybe have done us wrong. Now, this is hard for people to accept and I don't expect everybody to agree with me on this and plenty of Christians would say, I'm not doing that, but this is what God says to us. And again, Paul really powerfully in verse seven, why not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now, again, who would, who would just let themselves be taken advantage of? Why would you do that? Who would do that? Here's what Paul's talking about, I think. How you respond to sin that's done against you. How you respond when somebody maybe cheats you or wrongs you or does something that you just think they shouldn't do. The reality is, and it, this isn't gonna jive with everybody I know, but, but Christians, we ought to not be as sensitive over things pertaining to material temporary matters as the world. That's what he's saying. That if it's, if it's a material temporary matter, if it's something that is not gonna matter eternally, why are you getting so bent out of shape about it? I know it's yours or what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. I know, I know why you are, but come on, why are you so bent out of shape over something that's material and temporary? We ought not to be so quick and ready to jettison or throw aside our testimony in order to shore up ourselves material or temporary gains. And again, we may have the right to, but here's what Paul is saying here. We ought to be and must be willing to sacrifice our rights if it means protecting our testimonies in other people's relationship with Jesus. As in, the way we respond to people reflects where our faith is and what we value the most. And it may affect how they respond and it may affect whether or not they actually see Jesus in us. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy. The Lord's servant must be not quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. That's a really awesome phrase, isn't it? Because who can patiently endure evil? Why would you endure evil? You should stand up. Paul says, patiently endure, correcting your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. 
But do you see the correlation there? That they may not get the chance to repent unless you first show them patience and grace and gentleness. God may grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So of course they're doing the wrong thing. Of course they're in the wrong. (laughs) They're, They're ensnared by the devil just like you were before God saved you. Not everyone is mature enough to hear this, but the reality is we cannot remain in this immaturity. We must confess our shortcoming. Listen, all of us have a nature that gets offended and angry, that's full of pride and greed, that wants revenge, but that is not how we've learned in Christ, is it? What did Jesus teach in that very same chapter? Turn back to Matthew 5 with me, if you will. In that very same chapter in Matthew 5, when he called us lights of the world, Look at a few things in the Beatitudes that Jesus says about us or about the the people that follow him. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, as in the humble, as in the ones in our, so quick to remind people of their might and their strength and their rights, but those that are meek, they're the ones that will inherit the earth. They may have things taken from them, but they've got greater rewards for them in the end. Blessed, verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called children of God as in the ones that are looking to make peace. Even if they could be just justified in fighting. We understand that our goal was to build up a kingdom for God. Our feelings are not wired to what we want, but rather what God wants. Look down at the end of that chapter, verse 38 through 44. Listen to Jesus. And again, this is probably one of the most controversial. We love to talk. We we hear about it, but we hardly ever apply it. Because why would you apply these things? Matthew 5, 38, listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tuning. Let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him that ask, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said of old, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those that spitefully use you and persecute you. Now this is not just a super saints, this is the mandate over every Christian, isn't it? You know why somebody would be willing to say, oh, you you took my shirt, here's my coat. You know why somebody would be willing to say that? Because they are not so attached to this temporary world anymore. And they realize that their value and their security is not tied to clinging to something. And again, I'm not saying that you should celebrate when somebody does you wrong or just lay down and let them walk all over you. But in the right place, in the right scenario, in the place that God has put you, if the right reaction is this, God says you should do it. The reality is to be so quick to argue and quibble over earthly matters reveals there's something wrong in our hearts that always trying to win or score against someone suggests that we're still trying to earn approval from this world rather than resting in salvation that Jesus has given us. I know it's hard to hear, even harder to implement, but come on, this, this is Christianity. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. You know how hard it is to leave that up to God? 
I mean, never avenge yourself. What about sometimes don't avenge yourself or most of the time? But let me have a little bit of opportunity to. Never avenge yourself. How many times have we, how often do we keep that? We always want to get the last word. We always want to pay somebody back. We always want to remind people that we can punch back harder. But what does God say? Never avenge. Why would, he, why would this be such a prevalent message in the Bible? Because there's something more important than your pride. There's something more important than your earthly material record. It's your testimony in the kingdom of God. And again, I know our flesh says this is silly, this is crazy, this is insane. But this is the way of the Christian. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good so we cannot, we cannot uphold and feed grudges because of greed and bitterness and vengeance and pride. We must be people who pursue peace and pursue reconciliation. And you know what the quickest way to reconciliation is and peace is? You know what the quickest route to reconciliation is? What did Jesus do on the cross when he was being hurled at with insults, when he was betrayed and beaten and left to die? What did he do? You know what he did. Father, forgive them. They knew what they were doing, didn't they? They cursed him and they mocked him and they beat him and they crucified him. But Jesus says, Father, they don't realize. Now, again, that's, if Jesus said that, then I'm going to go with Jesus. I don't think that they were innocent. I don't think that they were ignorant. But he must know something I don't know. When people sin against me, I'm pretty sure they know what they're doing. Right? How much more vile and maligned and, and, and defiant could it be to nail Jesus to a cross? What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. And you know how, look at how quickly, how that did not even phase them. They were casting lots for his garments. They're trying to see if they could buy his garments so they could take his garments to sell them. That's how unfazed they were by this. That's how ridiculously lost they were. And what did Jesus do? Why did he do it? Because that was the only solution for peace and reconciliation. From that moment, you and I and everyone with an offense toward God came under the blood of Jesus and we are forgiven because he said those words, forgive them. So how can we be reconciled to even those who have wronged us? We must choose forgiveness. We must chase and pursue forgiveness. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, this reveals the heart of a true Christian. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive them their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. You know what that tells me? that if we can't forgive others, then we've never been forgiven. We've never, been under, we've never come under the blood. If we over and over again have a, find it impossible to forgive people, then we do not know the power of forgiveness. We just don't. Now, I know it's hard. That's not, that doesn't mean that we're always gonna be the, you know, the first thing we think about when someone wrongs us is, oh, I forgive them. You, that should be where we end up. That should be where we end up, but, but that's not where we always begin from. I understand that. But as a Christian, there shouldn't be a 10, 15, 20 minute period where it doesn't come into our mind. What does Jesus tell me I must do? I must forgive. 
because I've been forgiven. When Jesus was betrayed by me and crucified for me, what did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here's the thing, and we'll close here. You know what you've been called to do. We know what we've been called to do, don't we? To be a light to the world. What is the most important thing about our placement in his body? To be his light, to be a testimony. You know why I know that's important? Because back in 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians, verse number, six, verse number 7, where Paul says, therefore it is already an utter failure for you, to you, for you to go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? For Paul to say that, that's a big deal. Paul's not saying that you weren't hurt. Paul's not saying that something wasn't done wrong to you. He's not saying that that wasn't a big deal, that that wasn't an offense to God, that that wasn't wrong. He's not trying to say, oh, don't worry about it. He's trying to get us to realize there's something more important. Do you see that? And if he's willing to say to you and say to me, shouldn't, you, should be, you should be more willing to be cheated than you should be more ready to try to win for your sake. Again, there may be a case where that's important. And he's not trying to say there aren't important, serious matters. But in the trivial things of life, and what's trivial is what's temporary, what's material, this isn't life. This isn't somebody's life in danger. This isn't somebody tried to hurt you or harm you or, or, or do something against you. This is, hey, I got my feelings hurt, right? What are 99% of our problems? Where do, they, where, do, where do our problems with people come from 99% of the time? Somebody did something we don't like, right? And I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a big deal, but that's the reality, right? Somebody hurt our feelings. Somebody made us mad. Somebody did something we didn't like, and by gosh, we're not going to let them forget about it, Right? Man, we're going to stand there and point our finger to them. We're going to let them know you did the wrong thing. And Paul said, of course they did the wrong thing. They're lost. They're not a Christian. You are. You know how you became a Christian. You give them that same forgiveness and you shower them with grace because it could be that's what's going to get them to Jesus just like you got to Jesus. So I want us to think about this. We'll get into the part two and three next week. Think about how important your testimony is. Think about how we are shining our lights for Jesus. But this chapter has made it very clear to us. There's a way to shine and there's a way to be a witness. And that is being like Jesus. And it could be. And again, I don't know. I don't, I'm not ready to go, theolo- to go to debate somebody theologically about this, but it could be that God allows us to be in a position where someone wrongs us so that we might be ready to show people what God has done in us and be a light to them. God would never will someone sin against you, but it could be that he allowed you to be in that position so that you might be ready to be a light when somebody is trying to bring darkness on you. Just something to think about. How is your testimony, how is your witness reflecting what Jesus has done in you? The, the quickest way to, 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 to figure out where our hearts are at is how do we react when somebody tries to take a piece of, this, piece of this world away from us? Are we quick to remember we've got something better so we can let it, let it slide and use that as a chance to love somebody? Or are we quick to put our feet in the ground and say, uh-uh, I'm not budging. 
You knock me over, I'm gonna bulldoze you back. Again, that's how a lot of people react. But such is not the way of the Christian. Thank y'all for being here tonight. This chapter, uh, we're just getting started with this chapter. The next pa- passage is gonna be about how we can, be re- we can recover from sin, how every one of us can experience the forgiveness of God and be delivered by God. We'll get into that next week. Thank y'all for being here tonight. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the light that has saved us. Thank you, Lord, that when we were in the wrong, you forgave us. Lord, it's so tempting to stand, our, to put our feet in the ground and say, I'm not gonna budge. But Lord, as Christians, we've been placed in this world strategically to be a light, to show people there's a different, there's a better way. There's a way that Jesus has paid for us. God, help us to be a forgiving people. Help us to be a people that show mercy and grace in a world that is all about taking and paying revenge. Lord, thank you so much for these that have come out tonight. May you bless them. May you prosper, excuse me, prosper them. And may you show us all the opportunity we have to be a witness and to be, have, have a testimony on display for Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.